Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Dwight Garner is a journalist and longtime writer and editor for The New York Times. In 2008, he was named a book critic for the newspaper. His reviews appear every Tuesday in the paper and online. His essays in journalism have appeared in the Oxford American, Slate, Esquire. He was a founding member of Salon.com. He is the author most recently of Garner's Quotations, a commonplace book, and we'll talk about that. He also wrote Read Me, A Century of Classic American Book Advertisements. Dwight can be heard on the New York Times Book Review podcast with Pamela Paul and recently was on the show with Paul and the original host of the program, Sam Tannenhaus, to discuss the 15th anniversary of the podcast. And Dwight was there at the very beginning also. Uh, Now he's on our Think Humanities podcast. Dwight Garner, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's fun to be here. A commonplace book. Let's just start there. And for those of uh, our in our listening audience who don't know what that is, what what is a commonplace book? Well, it's a it's a place where a person writes down favorite lines and observations from their from the things they've read and heard. And you know, these things, some of them have been published. I mean, by people. Virginia Woolf published a commonplace book, and W. H. Auden published one, and many other people. But uh, their history of them goes way back. I mean, um, you know, just sort of. The early days of Gutenberg, I mean, uh, or, or, or pre-Gutenberg, you might only have a manuscript back then or a book, um, a small time of availability with it. And so you might have to give it back soon. So you would write things down so you could reread them, you know, later on your own. And, and it's just a place where I've kept mine since I was quite young. Are, are you um, a, a journaler? Do you keep a journal? And, and is that, or is it something I, I've heard you say many times, uh, that you are an underliner, uh, you write in the margins, uh, or did you keep a form or you, you actually had a notebook? I had a notebook. I started when I was in my teens and I would write, I, I don't know, I, I forget exactly what made me start, but I was reading, I was a big reader when I was a kid and I would write down, and when you're young, that's kind of stuff, the kind of quotes that, that appeal to you are kind of the kind of stuff that wouldn't appeal to me now, the kind of things that you write in the margins, you know, so true, you know, uh, love is a battlefield, I mean, you know, just really banal things I'm sure I wrote down when I was 15 years old. But um, I slowly kept it going and I moved it to a computer in the 90s. And um, now it's gotten, I mean, if I printed the whole thing, it would fill a couple of volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica. And I, you know, in my own personal commonplace book, I keep things in categories. I mean, you might find a category for social class or one for dinner parties or one for envy or a category for, you know, not just food, but every kind. I mean, you one for pizza, you know, and, and I, <laughs> I, I, I write things down. And um, I, one day, a couple of years ago, I started messing around with some of my favorite quotes and kind of arranging them in order. And that's how this book got started, um, Garner's Quotations, which is only a very small part of what I've collected, but I've, I've Put things, let them speak to each other, and put them sort of in order. Are you going to do a volume two? Uh, because I, I, you know, this is a this is a lot. This is a, what uh, two hundred, almost three hundred pages, uh, and most of them are not all quotes, but the majority. Uh, will there be a, a a part two? 
I don't know. You know, it's funny. It, the book, I think, reads like a book of poems to some degree. It's a book of poetry. And and alas, it, I think it's selling like a book of poetry. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think there might be a second one. But but thus far, I mean, you know, it's done OK. It hasn't done terribly. But but, you know, it, it's it's not it's, it's by certainly not a bestseller. Um, but, yeah, I would consider it. I, I, I have a lot more to say on this topic. And I think I could I could do another one, probably even a better one now. <laughs> well, it's a it's a bestseller in our book. So, uh, but I, I did notice um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to ask you: um, it's not so much the question what makes a good quote, but what is uh, makes a good quote to you? Why did you on some of these? Uh, what stands out to you that that you thought? Well, I don't want to forget this. I'll jot it down. I'll use it again. I mean, you've also said uh, in other interviews that some people use quotes to make them uh, seem smarter, whether it's in writing or or whether you're in conversation with somebody to say that uh, 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 Robert Cairo said this about uh, Lyndon Johnson in 19 whatever. Uh, it, it, that wasn't your purpose, was it? Well, I'm certainly guilty of, of, of uh, I tell my wife, please stop me if I become a quote bore, you know, because <laughs> you know, she, she, if she's good enough. And matter of fact, uh, Margaret Drabble, the novelist, um, the first quote in my book, or the second quote, she says something like, "One of the hazards of having a of having a good education is that you tend to think in quotations. So when anything <laughs> comes up, I tend to, you know, right now I could reel off four or five quotes about public speaking or appearing in public, and should writers do so and critics do so? And I just my my mind works that way. I can't help it. Um, but what makes a good quotation often um, often brevity? I mean, wordy is rarely witty. Um, in, in my book of quotes, in Garner's Quotations, the book that's published, I tended to go for the darker stuff. And by dark, I mean, it's, it's a funny book, but um, I find, and I write this, I find that books of quotations, um, I find them somewhat skewed to the upbeat and the happy talk and the penny saved is a penny earned and how to lead a better life. And, you know, I have no problem with that kind of thing, but I feel like um, those kind of quotes are overrepresented, those sort of throw pillow quotes. And my book is kind of darker. There's more stuff about sex and envy and rage and depression. And, and I, I don't mean in a dark way. I think, I think they're pretty funny. I think the quotes are funny on those topics. But um, And also, books of quotations, until quite recently, did not allow um, any form of profanity. So you know, you're not going to find the F word in Bartlett's, at least not very often. And in my book, the F word's on every other page. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and that's, how literature, that's how literature is. I mean, as I say, I think, in my introduction, um, you know, the, one's favorite sentence in a novel often has the F word in it. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's pretty common. And it's a shame that those sentences aren't talked about more often. And in my book, they are. Well, I, I did notice uh, that um, there aren't too many uh, persons uh, that you uh, are quoting in your book, at least the compilation that you have uh, in the book, uh, that have more than nine quotes and uh uh, there are a couple. I haven't I haven't found them all, but I did notice that uh, you have uh, our, our Kentucky uh, native Robert Penn Warren in there nine times. Um, by the way, he was our um, we're, we're all big fans of uh, of Robert Penn Warren. He was our Kentucky statewide read uh, a couple of years ago with all the King's men. And we had a wonderful year of discussion and conversation uh, and really uh, scholarly work and look at his uh, at his work, but um, you 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 have nine of his in there. Is he a particular favorite of yours? Well, you know he is. I mean, I, I like Penn Warren. I've not read everything. 
Um, and I, I think he is is he's almost he's almost misremembered Penn Warren because you know he certainly deserves the heavy literary uh, credibility that he has, but he's he's shrewd and witty and prickly, and a lot of the things I quote him saying are are not the kind of things you'd expect to have him saying. Um, and I'm sort of forgetting now what they are, but some of them are about social class, why it's why why it's not good to be a gentleman because a gentleman doesn't often you know a gentleman's too polite to to get the things he really wants. There's some quote like that by Penn Warren, and it's a quote. Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember now. There are quotes about food, I believe, from anyway. But Penn Warren was a, was funny and dark and and witty, and I think he's not seen that way often enough. Well, the the uh, the real special uh, look that we took um, with scholars who are teaching uh, all the King's Men and some of his other work, uh, we had. Um, a scholar who came down from uh, the Robert Penn Warren uh, Center at, at Vanderbilt. Uh, she was, uh, and I'm looking for a couple, and you may be doing the same thing right now. Um, and you know what? I'd have to look back and check myself on this. I don't think the F word is in any of uh, Robert Penn Warren's quotes. He knew he couldn't sell a book back then. Uh, well, he, he couldn't publish them back then. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this first one on page 21 I fixed him so his unborn great-grandchildren will wet their pants on this anniversary and not know why. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, 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 they are witty and, and funny. Well, what, what in your, um, you've given us an idea of what you look for or what um, uh, you really like in a quote, but is, is a quote better if it's funny or poignant or philosophical or, or has the F word in it? Well, you know, it depends on your taste, right? But um, but I tend to like things that are, you know, um, that 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 say something about the world and say it in a funny, sharp way that kind of catches you by surprise. You know, um, um, you know, a, a way of framing the truth that 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 packs that truth into sort of just a condensed form and just lays it right out. And and often, you know, I mean, I, I've heard irony described or, or some forms of humor is just the truth being delivered faster than you expected it to come, you know, and you kind of laugh at the sheer audacity of something that's been said. And um, these quotes are like that, just like, what? He said, what? You know, and you can't quite believe that he packed that or she, that particular punch into that single sentence. And those are the kind of things I'm looking for myself. Now, the book came out in the uh, the fall of 2020, um, right in the uh, uh, great timing as far as COVID is concerned and the pandemic. Uh, you're going to be making, I'm sure, some other appearances. I mean, you've done a lot of Zoom, um, but I'm not sure reading from your your book of quotations is what you would do in a in a live reading anyway. When you are um, out out on the road and are asked to uh, come to a bookstore and and do a signing, how will you will will you read from your quotations? Uh, will you? Talk about, as we have, what uh, a good quotation is. How, how do you plan your your live events? Well, you know, I haven't done one yet because of COVID. So I've only done Zoom events. So I'm not sure that there will be any live event. The paperback comes out in November of this year. So maybe then I will. You know, it's funny. I haven't thought of that, Bill. I, hasn't, it hasn't, um, I haven't really given it any thought. But I will say that it's my book's detriment. It's the kind of book that would sell well by a cash register, you know. And there are no more cash <laughs> registers during COVID. So, you know. Poor, poor, pitiful me. So maybe in November, bookstores will be open and this book can move some units, as they say. But um, yeah, I haven't thought about it. I mean, it's not the kind of book you could really read on on Audible, is it? I mean, um, <laughs> you know, because it's just a compilation of quotes. But I will say in my own defense that I think they build momentum here and there. And, um, you know, there are no categories in my book. It, it just flows like like poetry. It doesn't break things down. 
And um, I look for quotes that, you know, strike unexpected chords um, with each other. Well, we um, have extended an invitation to you to uh, come to the Kentucky Book Festival in November. We hope to have a live event. We hope that you uh, agree to come and uh, uh, we'll have to figure that live event uh, uh, deal out. Uh, but I think they they would like uh, to you. Uh, they would like for you to also uh, talk about your your career as a writer and what you do at The New York Times and all of that. And I want to talk to you about that, too. But first, we're going to take a, a little break and hear from our underwriter, Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Okay, Dwight, uh, the, the book uh, I'm glad you told us is coming out in paperback in November. Um, I think there's a way to, you know, you could almost do, you said uh, it reads like poetry. Just imagine um, a, a theater, a theatrical production where you have, um, well, let's just say Samuel L. Jackson, um, maybe uh, a couple of more noted celebrities who are, who, are, who are taking turns reading as they reading your quotations. Uh, that's not a bad idea, is it? I, from, from, from your lips to God's ears or, or to, from your <laughs> lips to 90 seconds to wise ears. I'm not sure where. But um, yeah, no, it might be fun. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I think there are some sections of this book that, be, that could be pretty humorous read out loud. So good idea. Yeah, good. What's the what's the difference between a a book critic and a book reviewer? Ah, I, I'm th I mean, there is no difference. I mean, yeah, I was reading. Okay, here's a, one typical. I mean, I think in quotations. I was just reading William F. Buckley saying that at the National Review magazine, he had a, he had a book reviewer, and the book reviewer insisted on being called a critic. And Buck and he said, if you don't call me a critic instead of a reviewer, I'm gonna I'm gonna resign. And Buckley said, no, we're calling you a reviewer, and he didn't quit. <laughs> but um, but there is no difference. I mean, I, I tend to think if there is one. Um, a reviewer somehow implies a certain softness. You know, um, we're just reviewing. You know, we're just we're just going to pass over lightly. It's like it's like a general reviewing his troops or something. So I don't love the word reviewer, but I don't I don't you know I, I don't despise it either. I mean I, I mean the 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 glory of uh, the, the tradition of, of criticism in America. It, it, the word it's the word criticism and criticism. You know, uh, most people think it involves fault finding um, and, and mean things. It doesn't at all. I mean, criticism is just a way of thinking about life. It's what we do when we talk at the dinner table with our friends. We we criticize the world. We criticize the H or the Netflix show we watched. We criticize human behavior. We, and what that means is we're talking about it and, and unpacking it and trying to figure out why something matters to us or doesn't matter. And, you know, I, um, um, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx um, tries to think of a perfect day in a perfect world. He imagines what it might be. And he he sort of has, you know, well, fishing in the morning, you know, freed from the shackles of, of, of the factories. You know, we might hunt in the morning and fish in the afternoon. And then in the evening we'll criticize, you know, and that was just his dream life. And, and it's kind of my dream life, too. My favorite friends are people who have opinions and it's fun to talk to them about them. And so I hope that my reviews, my criticism reads like a conversation with someone. Are you always honest? Um, ha, that's a good question. Um, I hope so. I think so. I'm trying to think why would I would ever pull a punch. I mean, you know, 
critics pull punches generally not by not being honest, but by just not writing about certain things. I mean, you know, I might decide maybe there's a first novel and and I, I think I'm going to review it because it looks like it might be a big deal. And then I hate the novel. And who wants to, you know, sort of crap on a first novel um, that you don't like? So sometimes you'll, I would say, I will avoid things. So maybe that's a maybe that's sort of a sin of omission. But no, I, you know, I don't have it in me really. I I, I have to sleep at night and. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, George Orwell said that um, anyone who has a professional relationship with books, like a critic, will tend to overpraise about 20% of them because it's hard to, you know, there, there are only so many good books in a year and a critic sees so much and you can't just be a, a full-time bummer. But I don't want people to, I mean, no one would trust a critic who didn't dislike things um, on occasion or on many occasions. So you don't want to be that Pollyanna who no one takes seriously and you want to tell the truth. And um so it's 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 yeah I, I feel I feel a duty to be honest. Do you select the books that uh, you're going to uh, write um, the, the review of, or does somebody uh, give you those? Well, how, how does that system work at the New York Times? Well, we we choose. There are three of us daily critics: myself, Parl Segal, and Jennifer Zalai, and we choose. I mean, the book industry sends us advanced copies of books. And I mean, I, my mail is out of control. I get I get twenty books in the mail every day, and I organize them. Um, by um, by month, and the Times will say to me, Dwight, what are you reviewing in July, for example? Any day now, I'll be picking my July books. And these books behind me are not those, but let's say the shelf right across behind me, whoops, this way, is the July books I have on the shelf. And I'll kind of go through them one by one. And, you know, and I only have four or five slots to fill in a month. I review once a week. And one or two of those July books might be kind of obvious. Maybe it's a new novel from you know, um, uh, Laurie Moore or some person we all know who's a big deal mm -hmm. or a major biography of Robert Penn Warren or something that just, I kind of know that's my stuff. And I'll put, but then it gets hard because then you, maybe you pick two books, but you've got three more to do. And I will try to read a little bit in all the books and see if there might be a first novel or something worth talking about. And so it's, it's a hard process. And I sit down and I kind of work it out with my colleagues, who's going to do what. And, um, but no, we, we're, not at, we're not told to do things. My editors will suggest once in a while, but, but that's all. Because the, the book review covers almost everything. And so we're kind of given free, free reign. Uh, you are the uh, the last uh, person standing as far as uh, book reviews concerned um, uh, with a daily newspaper. I, I think the the Post has the Washington Post has has something, but it's it's not as robust as uh, the Review. Um, it, are, does it um, does it sadden you? Uh, maybe the, is the wrong word, but uh, are, are, do, do you regret that uh, there's not more? criticism, not more uh, exposure to books uh, uh, without having to go online and do something from um, uh, that, that you read from Amazon or, or, or another uh, producer like that? No, it's, it's been devastating, just devastating what's happened to book review sections and book reviews in America. Um, it's just, just incredible. Um, the great North Carolina writer Reynolds Price wrote a memoir before he died. This is about 15 years ago now. And he wrote that in the 50s and 60s, when he was starting, uh, uh, a decent first novel in America might get more than 100 reviews, I mean, from publications spread across the country. And he wrote, and this was 20 years ago or so, he wrote, now that number might be 15. And I would suggest now that number is three or four. Um, so many newspapers have stopped reviewing books. Um, so many of the, uh, I mean, time and newsweek reviews don't matter now. Those were big deals for books, you know. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, there's still some good critics. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to malign them, but those publications don't have the cultural clout they did. They had enormous clout. Um, and 
um, all those alternative weekly newspapers that I cut my teeth as a young writer writing for the Village Voice in New York and the Boston Phoenix in Boston. And those places are dead. And um, yeah, and, and so what, what, the, what happens now is that people like me have way too much power. Um, and, you know, my review matters more than it should. And I, I don't, that's not good for me or good for the publishing industry or good for the New York Times. Um, I sometimes en envy uh, critics who live in London where there are seven daily newspapers and you get this sense of kind of battling it out and the ping pong ball is going back and forth in this conversation about books. And um, I don't like the sense that my review is somehow a book's yearbook photograph that will be stuck with it forever. I mean, I like to think that my reviews matter to people and I hope they want to read them, but it's not good for anyone, this dwindling of voices. And I, um, Anyway, it really upsets me, and I and I I like criticism. I like reading critics, and it and there's there's still some great ones out there, by the way. But but they don't have the outlets that they once had. You've been writing for a long time, um, and you could probably do, and you you may have uh, lectured or uh, taught um, how to write um, a review, how to write a criticism. What what do you think are maybe one or two elements that uh, you always try to uh, insert in your writing uh, when you're reviewing something, uh, or does it? Um, have you been doing it so long? You're such a good writer that it just kind of flows. It's organic, and uh, somebody may edit and take something out, or you might uh, go back to it later. Ha -ha. What's what's your process? You know, I, I, as you mentioned earlier, I underline like crazy, and I take a lot of notes while I'm reading. And so, one of the big things is is if you want to be a critic and review a book, you've got to write down your best thoughts while you're reading. I mean, it's like, going, it's like going on a trip. And if you want to write about your trip, you better write down what you felt walking across that bridge because you're not going to remember it when you're back home. You know, and so when I'm reviewing a book and something comes to me like, oh, this reminds me of this book or, you know, this line, mention this line because it, it, it's a really good line about what the plot is trying to do. And, and so I'm really working on it in my mind while I'm reading the book. And if you don't do that, if you walk up to the typewriter with nothing written down or no sort of ideas already there, you're going to, you might just draw a blank because it's experience you've had that's now passed. And um, so it's important to be taking notes during the process of reading a book. Um, but, you know, I try to be approachable and I try to be funny when I can. I don't sort of want to write the kind of review that feels like it's the voice of God laying down the laying down the, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Um, I want to be, when I can, approachable and, and, you know, let's have a conversation about something. So I try to be, you know, um, I mean, I, I like to be witty when I can. Not all reviews call for that. Um, but also you have to quote well. I mean, it's it's good to give a sense of a book. You know, I, someone said, and I agree, that you can't really review a book negatively unless you quote from it and show some certain passages. It's, just, it's hard to, you don't really believe the, I mean, it's, well, first of all, anyone can have an opinion, right? I mean, you, your Uncle Doug has an opinion about whatever, about Fellini, you know, um, but you want to read Uncle Doug? No, but he, his opinion might be more right than than mine or than, but it, being right doesn't matter. Um, what ma I mean, hopefully you're not really wrong all the time. But being right matters less than being interesting and unpicking your ideas and explaining them in a plausible manner. And so you want to read uh, the opinion, even if you disagree with it. Um, and Dunk Uncle Doug may just be like, no, you're wrong. But <laughs> it, it, you know, what matters is being able to talk about it. You read so much, and I'm, uh, you're reading in all genres. You read uh, fiction and nonfiction, and, and, and uh, I'm sure you read some poetry, and you um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, your, your two books uh, that you've written are nonfiction, um, and uh, you're constantly writing uh, uh, reviews, uh, criticism, uh, which are uh, based on fact, but they're nonfiction too, um, I hope, I think they are. Um, what have you ever 
wanted to uh, have you ever thought that you could be a, a novelist or uh, write something else uh, in, in long form nonfiction on a, a well, I said a minute ago on a how to write. I mean, what what about writing fiction? You know, I've tried writing fiction here and there in my life. Um, and um, I think I possibly, well, let me say, first of all, I'm one of those rare people who's doing the thing that I dreamed of when I was, you know, it's, it's, it's the rare kid who wants to be a book critic, right? But I was that kid. As James Walcott says in his memoir um, called Lucking Out, there's no table at the college job fair. There's no table that says criticism, <laughs> you know, if you walk up and, and, and get a job, you know. But I did in, in college, I wanted to be a New York Times book critic. I mean, I did. And, 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 and so, you know, it's a greasy pole to climb and I made it. And here I am. Maybe I should quit today while I'm ahead. But um, what are we talking about? We we're talking about... Um, <laughs> If you if you ever uh, uh, why why haven't you you've read some of the best fiction ever published in in the entire world did it ever tempt you to try to do the same thing? Well, when you read the best fiction in the world, you think, my God, hell no, I can't do this. But often you read really bad fiction and really shitty stuff, and you think I could do this, and then that's the day. You th but you know, no, I've I've. The, when I, w I went to Middlebury College, and Middlebury College has a wonderful, um, called the Breadloaf Conference, a um, writer's conference every summer. And I could have gone there when I was a kid, I mean, a kid when I was in college, and I didn't, I was one of those sort of, I thought, you know, writers, writers conferences are for, for, for weenies and, you know, no, a real, writer, a real writer goes to the city <laughs> you know, and, and, and makes their name or whatever. But, you know, I, and uh, I, I, you know, and I, I had to, I, you know, I had to pay the rent. I, I was kind of a working writer. I was a journalist when I started out. I edited you know, I, I was an editor for the arts section of an alternative weekly paper. And, you know, I, I didn't have the time. But, but then again, people who really want to write fiction make the time. So I have no excuse. Uh, I um, have uh, been to um, uh, I rode by Middlebury on my bicycle. Um, so I know where it is. Uh, you're a kid from West Virginia. Tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in in um, uh, in Appalachia. Well, I only lived there for seven or eight years. I left when I was seven and a half. I was born in Fairmont, West Virginia, um, which is in a coal mining region. My grandfather, Archie, was a coal miner who later went into real estate. My own father um, um, went to WVU in, in, in Morgantown and went to law school there. And so I grew up largely in Charleston, West Virginia. And um, we moved to Florida when I was eight. Hmm. And... Um, the thing about West Virginia for me is, and I went back all the time, and I still have relatives there. And I, my 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 grandfather, who was the coal miner, I was very close to. It was a big deal in my life. Um, it's funny. I'm writing a book about this now, about being from from West Virginia, and um, part of it is less my own experiences, of which I have things to write about my own experiences. But it's about um, well, I'm writing about first of all how American culture views mountain people and views the, the the citizens of places like West Virginia. I'm also writing about what it means. It's always it's made me instinctively. Um, interested in, I think, the underdog in, in fiction and in American culture. It's made me, um, I remember thinking when I started at the New York Times that it didn't feel like there were many people from West Virginia here. Um, when I started the book review, a lot of Yale people, a lot of Harvard people, a lot of Princeton people, I, I think I was the only West Virginian. Matter of fact, I know I was at the book review. I've now since found there, there are a couple at the paper. Um, but uh, just how it's informed my sensibility and my, and my literary taste. I, I, you know, there are a lot of West Virginia writers like Brees, DJ Pancake, and, and um, uh, Jane Ann Phillips, who mean a lot to me. And um, it's how it's formed my taste and my sense of myself, um, being a being from West Virginia in, in a city like Manhattan. So it's it's complicated, but it's I think it's 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 
it's been useful to me. I, I, I'm glad I'm from there, and I, I'm, I'm fond of that place and the people of that place. Is your uh, book an answer to Hillbilly Elegy in any way? Uh, some people have attempted that, uh, some rather successfully. Uh, there, there are a couple of really good uh, pieces by Kentucky writers now. Cassie Chambers is one of those who I think ended up with two degrees from Harvard and came back uh, to Louisville and wrote um, wrote a, a, a nonfiction a book uh, two years ago. Um, is this a uh, response to uh, to J.D. Vance? I think it will be in some ways, yes. On the other hand, he wrote a good book. I mean, I don't agree with it politically here and there, but, you know, he, it's a good story, and he told it well. And I, I have no animus towards J.D. Vance, even though his politics aren't mine. Um, when I read that book, a few things rubbed me the wrong way, but for God's sakes, we should all be able to be rubbed the wrong way sometimes. And um, so I, I'm, I'm not going to be writing an animus of him, put it that way, even though his his way of thinking about these places is not my own. Um, but, yeah, I think it will be positioned that way. I mean, it's an easy – It's a, a, my publisher probably will sort of make that distinction in some way if, if I don't. But um, – but yeah, it's a complicated book and a complicated man. But um, anyway. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, the, the podcast um, and the startup. Uh, and I, I heard the program uh, uh, Sunday. I heard it uh, Friday uh, on. I heard it on Sunday um, when the when when it started. And you were you were right there. I mean, podcast at that time, as uh, Sam Tannenhouse uh, pointed out, uh, I mean, I think was he doing it in his office? Uh, and just yeah, recording yeah. in there, you know, things have gotten a little bit uh, more sophisticated now. I mean, my goodness gracious, if you don't have a memoir these days, even though you might be 15 years old uh, or a podcast, you're, you're nobody and uh, everybody has one. Uh, but you started and you were there. What was it like in those early days of uh, the New York Times Book Review podcast? You know, we were really just winging it. I mean, we, we, I had some crazy idea early on that we should hire a fancy talent and have NPR produce it or someone from NPR, you know, which who knows, maybe that would be a great idea. Now that podcast would be would be a big deal. But we decided just to go by the by the seat of our pants. And, um, you know, there were a lot of screw ups. We times the tape recorder didn't work. And, you know, it's it's that's the that's the interviewer's worst nightmare. I'm sure. Come on. Tell me it's happened to you at least once. It must have. Right. <laughs> well, if sure. But, uh, you know, it's. It's just like gambling with Zoom, too. You, you never know right. when there's going to be a storm outside or somebody turns a light switch on and you get all kinds of, you know. Right, so. but it was fun. We started a blog back then and we started a podcast and we were just kind of throwing stuff at the wall in a, you know, in an amusing way. But but the podcast has done well and, and it's, 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 yeah. it's, you know, it, it's now kind of a big deal and it's well produced and, um, you know, it's from, from, from the small seed. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of for being there. And one thing I did that I'm even more proud of is that um, whenever a writer would come up to the book review to tape our podcast, I would have them. The Times now in the new building has these little rooms where they have telephones in them, and they're kind of rooms. They're, they're, they're the staff cracks. They're called like crying rooms. These little isolation rooms. You go have a phone call or go decide to have a breakdown. Um, but one of these little booth-sized rooms, every writer who came into the podcast, I had him sign the wall or her um, with a magic marker, and so now it's this great room filled with. The, the great writers of the last 25 years all having signed this wall. So it's uh, that's my gift to the New York Times building at any rate. Well, Dwight Garner, uh, New York Times uh, book critic and uh, uh, founder, uh, can I, uh, or, or one of the people that were there when the New York Times Book Review podcast started uh, many years ago, yeah. uh, resident uh, for a while of West Virginia. Uh, we we uh, would really uh, like to see you in Kentucky. If you're still doing research, by the way, uh, on uh, Appalachia, we've got a little bit of that here. You could uh, you could make the, you could write this off. You know, you could make this a uh, 
a trip, but your your uh, paperback, uh, the soft cover on Garner's Quotations uh, is coming out. Will it have the same cover? Uh, that, that, I love that color. Uh, yeah. so actually, the color will change. The color is kind of marine blue in, in the paperback, but I, I, I love the design of it. I think it's a good design. I like the color too, though. I should find out. That maybe there's a name for that color. I should, I should find out what it is. Yeah, that's uh, tangerine. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of well, box. we uh, we hope you come to visit us in Kentucky at the book festival in November. And until then, uh, good luck to you and your wife uh, on your travels and uh, the writing that you're doing. We'll continue to read. Thanks, Bill. You too. This was fun. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.